O'er the glad waters of the dark blue sea, our thoughts as boundless and our souls as free. Far as the breeze can bear the billows foam, survey our empire and behold our home. These are our realms, no limit to their sway, our flag the scepter, all who meet obey. Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. That's right, scallywags, it's pirate time. Welcome back to another episode of Raging Romantics. I'm Jen. I'm Jackie. And this podcast is brought to you by Northern Onondaga Public Library. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things related to Romance Landia. With that being said, please be aware that sometimes our material may be a little too sensitive for younger listeners. If you need to wait until they go to bed, we'll still be here for you. So without further ado, are you ready, Jen? Oh, I'm ready, Jackie. All right. Let's rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes? What's a pirate's least favorite vegetable? <laughs> what? Leeks. <laughs> There's a leak in the boat. See, you get it. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Also funny because you hate vegetables. I hate them so much. I really just emphasize so much with the pirates right now more than I ever thought I would oh it's amazing you don't have scurvy yet I I want one I have a whole pirate funeral planned if I I die of scurvy oh man it's gonna be amazing I hope I die of scurvy because everybody's gonna come in pirate costume okay on the water I'm gonna be there in a coffin and I'm gonna hire like creepy scary looking men to come over and stand (laughs) over my my dead body and be like it should have been me just to cause some kind of like fun rumors swirling around uh the people who I never actually liked are gonna have to walk the plank because I'm not gonna have to deal with that drama now that I'm dead and all of my estate is gonna be in a treasure map (laughs) so whoever finds the treasure gets not that I have that much gets her chocolate chip cookie recipe they get the chocolate chip cookies they get the chocolate they get the thousand romance books they get the dog (laughs) like everything I love most in this world yes because lucky will outlive you yes yeah oh absolutely he's gonna outlive everybody all right well as always before we begin Jen and I would like to say thank you to Northern Onondaga Public Library for hosting this podcast and letting Jen and me talk about one of our favorite book genres as if no one's listening but thank you for listening yes seriously thank you so much for listening um if you're ever in the Syracuse area, give us a shout at ragingromantics at nopal.org and maybe we can meet up. We would love to tell you about romance books and library cards. Listen, we have an oven in the library now so we can make you cookies. I just give me a heads up. I don't keep cookie dough in the fridge. I have to bring it down. <laughs> okay. I'm not that good. But if you're new to this podcast, welcome to the Madhouse. Jen and I are public librarians who talk all things romance book related. And in this series that we're currently doing, we're taking a look at the lost genres of romance landia. In part one, we dove into icy North Atlantic waters to examine some of my personal favorite characters, Vikings. Our hypothesis there was that they got left in Romance Landia's dust. As the 21st century developed, as women began writing better and stronger heroes and heroines, and as the sexuality in those older books began to be looked at through a modern lens, readers lost interest in the very binary, toxically masculine bodice rippers in favor of newer, more modern plot lines and heroes. In this part of the series, we're going to be taking a look at everyone's favorite dirty hero, and not necessarily dirty in the fun way, um, the Jack Sparrow of the book world, Pirates. Woo! And again, fair warning, this is once again a Jackie episode. I'm sorry I pitched this series, and I love history just way too much. Um, so there's going to be another history lesson. Arg! But don't worry, there will be talk about Disney too. Oh, wait, well, let's go. I mean, Disney yeah. had a major influence. Yeah. I think 
pop culture in general, how we yes. feel about pirates. Because I don't, I'm going to take a crazy leap here. I hope I'm not getting too far off the plank. <laughs> I, I'm going to say real pirates are not really what we think pirates are. Oh, then th- there be sharks in them, their waters. <laughs> that's not, that's not the direct quote. But anyways, closing up. I also want to say most people have a really good idea of what sort of pirates I'm talking about. You know, the Blackbeard, Anne Bonny, 1700s, Pirates of the Caribbean sort. So I'm not necessarily going to delve into the history of the time period outside of the books and caricatures we're going to talk about. I do, however, want to give a deep history rundown of what led to this time period of piratical history, aka the golden age of piracy. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be looking heavily at how pirates have been viewed historically and what caused them to be viewed as romantic figures both contemporaneously and in today's media. Because, spoiler alert, as Jen already said it, they were not the romantic figure that really is portrayed. I'm so sad Fabio is not going to sail along with his clear skin and fresh water. <laughs> Beautifully flowing, clean hair. Just no t- lice. All of the teeth in his mouth. All of his fingernails. And sweep me away to, I don't know, some private island. Fresh minty it. breath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no B.O. <laughs> or at least fresh smelling. So Anyways, sad. Jen, before we begin, do you have any thoughts, feelings, opinions on this subject? No. Okay. I mean, I'm excited. I like pi- I like the idea of pirates, I guess I should yeah. say. I think, so I think it'll be really interesting. I think they're one of the more popular yeah. sub-genres, mm-hmm. which is interesting talking about them in the term of lost genres. But to be fair, when we were talking about this, when I sat down and thought about it, I can't really think of a real pirate book that's come out. I feel like the closest, uh, Julia Quinn had that Mrs. Bridgerton. We'll talk about it. Oh, good. Okay. Like that's the closest I can think. And that's not a real pirate. No, we'll talk about that too. And I feel like there's a difference too between the characters that are actual pirates that we would consider like a Jack Sparrow pirate. Mm -hmm. And then people who were doing some kind of like smuggling because of an unjust king. Mm -hmm. There were more like raiders or like protectors. There's like a couple categories of Mm -hmm. pirates that don't get talked about and are kind of overlooked. Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. Again, you're riding that segue. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I gotta buy one. <laughs> well, shiver me timbers and let's get sailing then. Uh, general content warning for this episode, we will be mentioning slavery and the transatlantic slave trade as well as colonization um, and some dubious consent themes. So just be aware of that. I will as always try to actually say it when we get to it, but we all know Jen and I like to get swept up in the moment and sometimes we just miss the content warning. So general one here. Now. Pirates. Although we modern Westerners tend to associate them with the 18th century version, pirates have actually been around for as long as humans have been sailing the oceans, which, spoiler alert, that has been a very long time. One of the oldest documents describing pirates comes from an inscribed clay tablet which dates back to the time of the Pharaoh Akhenaten from approximately 1350 BCE. That's 1350 BCE. The report inscribed on the tablet mentions notorious freelance Mediterranean shipping attacks in North Africa, although, quote-unquote, pirates aren't mentioned, just raiders who sail the seas. Honestly, Mediterranean cultures were so centered around maritime trade and exploration that privacy was one of the central pillars to a lot of activities that took place in this region at this point in history. We have evidence of this in the form of the tyrant Polycrates, who flourished in the 6th century BCE in the Greek Greek islands area. It wasn't Greece at this point in time, but like that area of the Mediterranean. Around 535 BCE, Polycrates established a despotism on the island of Samos after seizing the city of Samos from his brothers with whom he had co-ruled previously. From there, he would create a naval base for his 100-vessel fleet with which he terrorized the larger Mediterranean with various acts of piracy. 
There is actually a vast majority of early historical evidence from the Greeks when it comes to extant instances of piracy, both in written fragments and through the archaeological record. For instance, in the 4th century CE, and again, remember, BCE can be equated to BC and CE is like AD. It's just non-biblical terms here. In the 4th century CE, we have a marble fragment that gives proof of the city of Athens honoring a sailor, man, person named Cleomus for ransoming a number of Athenians who had been captured by, quote, lestai, or thieves. This word, lestai, appears to be an early allusion to pirates in the Mediterranean. What's interesting is that Cleomus most likely was a pirate himself, but it could have been state-sponsored piracy since Athens, which at the time was a city-state or polis, awarded him for bringing Athenians back who had been captured. Cleomus is clearly identified in this um, inscribed marble fragment as the tyrant of Methymna, I can't say this word, Methymna on Lesbos. So he is identified as a pirate himself. Mm. Are we just focusing on European pirates today? Because I actually have read about like the really cool Chinese queen ones. Yeah, so that is a good point. We are mm-hmm. going to be mostly focusing on European and especially English and Spanish pirates because we're going to be talking about transatlantic slave trade and the Caribbean. Because Oh, gotcha. Okay. In romance books, mm-hmm. that's largely what we have. But China, as Jen just pointed out off, off mic, did have some really cool history of piracy. Mm-hmm. China actually had some of the largest naval fleets like throughout history. I mean, China, Japan, East Asia, South Asia, it's largely islands and seas. So they have a huge uh, maritime culture. So yes, I will put some resources in the show notes about the Chinese pirates because there's this one pirate queen who was super cool. She was totally a badass and I owe you a quarter, but I don't even care because she was so cool. See, that's the kind of romance books I kind of wish were coming out too. Like that would be such a cool take. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately I did do the white Eurocentric thing and focused on European piracy. Well, it's okay because you're doing it in in terms of romance books. Yeah. And unfortunately romance for a very long time has has been very white and very European centric and yeah. But yeah, even to this day, piracy still exists. And a lot of piracy now exists actually in Africa Mm -hmm. and in the South Indian Sea is where the majority of piracy, piratical acts take place. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not just Europe, but for this podcast it is. Moving forward in history, pirate first enters the lexicon during the Roman Empire. The Latin pirato was first used around 140 BCE by the Roman historian Polybius. Then the Greek historian Plutarch, writing in about 100 CE, gave the oldest clear definition of piracy, describing pirates as, quote, those who attack without legal authority not only ships, but also maritime cities. Pretty simple, straightforward definition. Piracy was further described for the first time, among others, in Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey. I love it has to be illegal. Like, sure, (laughs) it's state-sponsored. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So for the official definition of of pirates in today's day and age, a pirate is someone who engages in acts of robbery on the high sea. That's 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 it. it. So I could go be a pirate if I steal somebody's jet ski? Well, you have to be on the high sea. So you can't oh, be on can't a lake. Be on a river? According to this, no. No, I'm just a common criminal. It has to be on an ocean. Yeah, lame. Which I'm like, but there are Amazonian pirates that yeah. they talk about. So I think this that feels a little narrow-minded. I could be a pirate if I steal something on the Oneida River. <laughs> Merriam-Webster was like, no high seas. It's like mm, lame. Okay. And what's so high about them anyway? <laughs> yeah, seriously, why are they called the high seas? We would like to know. <laughs> 
honestly, I'm amazed at how simple the definition is, but yeah. in reality, it's very all-encompassing minus the high C part. Rude. And so the label of pirate is easy to ascribe to many different people and groups throughout history. Of course, as we talked about a few weeks ago with Vikings, we can definitely use the label pirate to describe Scandinavian and Norse raiders, as the word Viking itself alludes to raids done on waterways. Just, you know, the word it meant crick, so maybe not necessarily pirate. Anyways, just as a reminder, the Viking Age generally is agreed upon to have ended in the 12th century CE, which is the 1100s, when these Scandinavian peoples were assimilated into other high medieval cultures. And for further definition, high medieval refers to the cultural standpoint of Europe and the Middle East that stretches roughly between 1000 CE and 1250 CE, and the late medieval period lasts from roughly 1300 to 1500 CE. That is relevant later on, I promise. I'll take your word for it. (laughs) It will later on is in right now. It's relevant. So oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> piracy continued throughout the high and late medieval periods following the assimilation of the Viking peoples. Although we don't see much evidence for more state sponsored piracy, like in the case of Cleomas in Athens, mostly pirates were a nuisance that people living on the coast and traders at sea had to deal with during the hundred years war, which lasted from 1337 to 1453 and involved the kingdoms of England and France. Piracy was If not sponsored, then at least tolerated as a method of destabilizing trade with the enemy. Think of like cutting off supply lines in a land Mm -hmm. battle, right? Same thing with pirates. This tolerance of a nuisance against the enemy would come to be a marker of piracy moving forward, especially in the case of the golden age of piracy 300 years later. So let's sail the high seas then and take a look at the age of expansion, exploration, colonization, and really tight bridges. (laughs) Yeah. The Golden Age of Piracy stretched from 1690 to 1730, but can be understood as part of a larger period of cultural growth that started with the buccaneering period of the 1650s and really even earlier in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I and her sea dogs. Oh, yeah. That's cute. I want to be a sea dog. They aren't necessarily cute. In case you have no idea who I'm talking about, (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure everybody does, but just in case... Queen Elizabeth I ruled England and its territories from 1558 to 1603, and she took England on a wave of expansion that is generally agreed to have led England out of the medieval period and forward into the early modern era, and specifically the English Renaissance with Shakespeare. And everybody else, but you know Shakespeare. There's lots of little bits and pieces that we could go into with this time period, but I don't think Jen would let me say everything I would like to say. So to try and slim it down to a few minutes... When Elizabeth inherited the British throne, her country was religiously divided between the Church of England, established by her father, Henry VIII, yes, Henry VIII of six wives, um, and Catholic interests. If you remember from the Vikings episode, in this time period of European history, the church, capital C, was less about religious beliefs, although obviously that is a central tenet of the church, and more about a culture. It meant something to identify yourself as Protestant, as the English Isles did, or to align yourself with the Catholic church, such as, say, Spain and France did, or even Church of England, which is kind of along Protestant lines. It's it's a big thing. Um, During Elizabeth's reign, the tension between nations on opposite sides of the spectrum enmeshed itself into every single aspect of life, from trade to alliances to colonization and exploration to the simplest things such as what pattern of lace you wore. Your religion was a large part of your identity. And this would be one of the many tipping points that led to the growth of the English Navy and of England as a predominant sea power. You see, despite being an island nation, England had no large centralized navy at the start of Elizabeth's reign, and this was to their detriment. 
Powers like Portugal, Italy, Sicily, France, and Spain, England's direct competitors, all had established navies at this point in time. These competing interests were able to put their sailors, these other countries' sailors, into effect not only in harassing England and their other country enemies, but also in succeeding in ventures such as trade, exploration, and colonization, which made these countries extremely wealthy. If you'll recall, under Spanish monarchs, and this is the trigger warning for colonization and slave trade right here. Um, under Spanish monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, Christopher Columbus established his horrendous colonization of the Bahamas between 1492 and 1504. Likewise, Amerigo Vespucci, sailing under Spanish and Portuguese flags, helped, quote, discover <laughs> North America. The age of exploration started as a way for European countries to get around the blockade of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East but quickly evolved into a land grab that made countries wealthy beyond belief thanks to the new resources and capital they gained from the, quote, new world and their exploitation of that land. But back to England. With their lack of a centralized navy, England was at a loss. They couldn't compete in the state-sponsored exploration degree that their rivals in Spain, Portugal, and France could. But when they did attempt to send out their fledgling ships, they were quickly attacked by their adversaries who had bigger, badder, stronger ships and sailors due to their longer history at sea. Henry VIII had a standing navy under his rule, but if you're familiar with English history, you'll know that towards the end of his reign, he kind of started losing control a little bit, a little tiny bit, (laughs) and the navy largely dissolved during the last 10 years that he lived. When Elizabeth took the throne, she assumed power and was a woman with a plan. Under her reign, she sponsored a group of mariners known as... Jen's favorite, the Sea Dogs. The Sea Dogs. It's so cute. (laughs) Who included names such as Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, as in Raleigh, North Carolina. Fun fact. Elizabeth took it upon herself to establish England as a sea power and to strengthen England's position in the naval arena. Perhaps the most relevant way to the discussion in which she did this was in the sponsoring of privateers. Those Sea Dogs I mentioned, they carried with them letters of mark, licenses and commissions that authorized privately owned ships, aka privateers, to capture enemy merchant ships, take a profit, and then give the rest of the profit back to the state, state-sponsored piracy. Through this, Elizabeth was able to raise enough funds to supply a mass shipbuilding and training effort to create England's largest navy since her father's reign. She was then able to send these privateers and her navy men off to conduct exploration and to be a direct competitor to other European interests, especially against Spain. And as England's feud with Spain grew over resources, land, and maritime trade, so too did the physical battles between the two countries increase. There were, of course, other divisions and tensions along with other countries, but the battle that took place between the strong Spanish state and the growing lion of England would lead to iconic battles and the expansion of state-sponsored piracy. Elizabeth and England encouraged her privateers to attack Spanish ships and plunder them, and Spanish gold became a mark of wealth and power in the hands of its English counterparts. I think we have all heard of the doubloon. Yeah. The Spanish doubloon (laughs) came into play in the economy during this period and would create a gold fever that could be said to rival that of the California gold rush 200 years later. We all know basic economics, supply equals demand, and with English privateers constantly bombarding Spanish merchant ships and stealing the gold, This gold started to flood the English market, leading to the English Renaissance and a driving demand for more and more wealth. The more demand there was, the more incentive there was for privateers and mariners, even without letters of mark, to increase the supply. They sought out these merchant vessels, Spanish ships, barks coming from the American colonies full of goods and treasures that Europe had never seen before, directly leading to the rise of the age of privateers. 
Further, the establishment of the triangular trade route, the transatlantic trade, between Europe, Africa, and the Americas would forever change the socioeconomic structure of European and American culture. Content warning for discussions of slavery here. If you're not familiar with or don't remember that day of history class, the triangular trade was a transatlantic trade route that established a flow of goods between Atlantic continents. It would also lead to the rampant and rapacious abduction and deportment of African peoples out of West Africa to the Americas and to be used as a slave force for the colonies there. Raw goods such as sugar, wealth, tobacco, and cotton would be sent back to Europe from the Americas. And finished goods such as textiles and rum would be sent back to Africa. Those who participated in this trade grew wealthy beyond all imagination, and while European countries flourished, other countries, such as Africa and the indigenous populations in the North American continent and islands, suffered. Carrying on. After Elizabeth's death in 1603, England was thrown into the wars of religion as succession to the throne was questioned and religious divide grew even further. Privateers were still sponsored by the state time in England, divided though it was, continued to profit from ongoing trade and maritime supremacy. The East India Trading Company was established in 1600, and it really helped push England's agenda as a growing mar martial maritime power. Say that 10 times fast. Moving forward, when the English Commonwealth was established in 1649 and temporarily ended the English Civil War and one of the wars of religion, we see the start of a new period of warfare begin between England and Spain with the Anglo-French alliance of 1654. With the alliance of England and France, buccaneers began appearing on the scene, and these were the direct predecessors to the pirates we know and love? Sometimes. Fun fact, the word buccaneer comes from French boucanier, meaning a pirate, a curer of wild meats, a user of a boucan, which is a native grill for roasting meat. I did not know that, so that was a fun fact for you today. The buccaneering age was a period of French, British, and Dutch privateering and piracy in the Caribbean, mostly launched from places like Tortuga and Port Royal, which I think we all know those places thanks to the Pirates of the Caribbean. This era saw the rise of famous buccaneers and corsairs, such as Henry Morgan and Francois Lolonnet, 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 I think, um, who would help lay the groundwork, finally, for pirates. All, uh, there's a lot I could go into from here, but I think that pirates are so popular in media today that I don't really need to talk about the golden age of piracy necessarily so much, because this is the time period of Pirates of the Caribbean. This is the 1700s. So, like, Blackbeard? Blackbeard and Bonnie, mm -hmm. like... Tricorn hats. This is what we all think of when we think pirates. Well, I guess, is there anything that is maybe in the public's imagination that's not true? I want to say no, mm. because most people now are aware that pirates were not the romantic heroes that a lot of times oh, they okay. were portrayed as. Mm -hmm. I think that Pirates of the Caribbean actually did a pretty good job portraying like how dirty they could be. Mm -hmm. Like, the filthy body is just too like bad because they're surrounded by water yeah you, think you could have a lot of baths water water everywhere and not a drop to spare yeah. fun fact again um most sailors did not know how to swim because if their ship sank then they would naturally try to swim and they would exhaust themselves swimming mm -hmm. versus if they don't know how to swim and they sank they could just drown and die that's really bleak wow. <laughs> maybe that was a morbid fact not a fun wow. fact <laughs> Sorry. I guess they didn't have life vests back then. <laughs> no. They couldn't just float. I mean, it's seawater, though. They should just be able to float. Yeah, but sharks, deep water. Oh, maybe drowning is a blessing. There's no Mayday radio calls. You can only throw up a flag for so long. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to think about that when I go to sleep tonight. So let's <sighs> instead talk about the influence of media on pirates, and especially what they look like in romance novels, 
versus what they look like now in media. Capiche? Sure. Okay. So, the golden age of piracy lasted roughly from 1690 to 1730, and of course saw pirates from various nationalities missing the letters of mark and state sponsorship that saved them from being hunted by the law. They became outlaws, Robin Hoods, thieves who lived outside of traditional society. Were they actually Robin Hoods? Like, were they giving to the poor? No. Yeah, no. they were just doing it for they themselves. They were portrayed as yeah. Robin Hoods. And maybe they were mad at England or something, but yes. I'm sure it wasn't like, oh, yeah, no. oh, I'm doing this out of the goodness of my yeah, heart. No, they were portrayed as Robin Hoods. They were made into romantic fodder. Um, there was Steed Bonnet, who was known as the Gentleman Pirate, which if you've seen Our Flag Means Death, which is a new HBO show, um, he, he was... He was um, person who he wanted to take time away from his plantation so he made himself a pirate and he was known for having like fancy tea parties and everything on his ship so it was like a hobby yeah wow he was a hobby pirate (laughs) all right honestly for as long as golden age pirates have been around we have literature that has romanticized them and made them heroic figures but with a bloody tilt and understand here that when I mean romantic, I'm not necessarily talking about Fabio-esque swoon-worthy heroes who know how to French kiss. I'm talking about these characters being romantic in the sense of Lord Byron and gothic romanticism. Think Heathcliff on the moor. I mean, it makes sense to me. It does seem like it'd be fun to sail around. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, there yeah. is something very romantic about the idea of it. Yeah. And not like <gasps> romance, like da 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 da. Yeah, like it'd be a thrilling life. Yeah, yeah. when thrilling. you know you're stuck in your cubicle all day or stuck on land, it's like yeah, yeah. why? Like let me go off with our flag means death, and it's why I like to have watch the tea party parties life on the videos yeah. on YouTube. <laughs> all right. Torture, murder, battles at sea. There's something to follow that thought up with. Torture, murder, battles at sea, and marooned pirates fascinated readers from the get-go. Again, we have this really interesting phenomenon, like with Vikings, of contemporaneous chroniclers and historians writing about pirates and sailors in their stories. In 1678, so we're getting into the literature now. In 1678, a Dutch publisher named Alexandre can't say his last name, Exquamelin, Exquamelin, I don't know. He wrote The Buccaneers of America. A Frenchman by birth, Alexandre himself was a pirate after he trained with a doctor in Tortuga in the 1660s. But after five years, he quit piracy and returned to Europe, instead writing about his experiences. A general history of the robbers and murders of the most notorious pirates, pirates with a Y, mind you, was published in 1724, not long after the demise and or capture of Blackbeard, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed, and Bartholomew Roberts, who were known as some of um, history's most notorious pirates. Although the identity of the author of A General History is not known, he's referred to as Captain Johnson, but it's, it's a pseudonym, really. This book related the exploits of many well-known pirates, such as those previously mentioned, and would go on to inspire later stories of similar characters. This is the book. A General History is the book where we get a lot of the piratical tropes from. So like Jolly Roger, Blackbeard, the Kraken, all of that comes from General History. It's kind of funny. It's from one book. Yeah. I guess that's true of anything. It's just nice that it's like one guy. But it does expand off of a few other ones, Oh, too. oh okay, okay. So in 1798, the ballet slash play slash musical sensation Blackbeard. <laughs> oh, what is this, like original Hamilton? Kind they of, They had a yeah. musical of Blackbeard. <laughs> Blackbeard, or the captive princess, premiered on April 9th, 1798 at the Royal Circus wow. Theater and ran through July of the same year to a resounding success. It's a love story kind of where blackbeard kidnaps a princess and her lover wait wait wait. so is this like polly too yeah wow yeah 
and wait, it gets better. Um, he kidnaps the princess and her lover, and they go on all sorts of adventures and avoid his jealous wife. Ooh. Yeah, who's like, there's one part of the play where she's like watching from the sidelines, like squinting at them, I guess. I, there's illustrations. It's pretty funny looking. They get into battles on stage, and they generally shoot a lot of cannons while there's pianos playing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's like a, it's a pirate thing, and I'm pretty sure this is what inspired Pirates of Penzance. That is amazing. I'm really hoping that is what eventually happens to Hamilton. Like, that's a oh little God. peak in the past of that like would be great. Hamilton, years Can we get now. cannons in Hamilton? Oh, mm. sparklers. Eh, anyways, and then Lord Byron happened. Byron wrote and published The Corsair, which was what the quote at the beginning of this episode was from, um, in 1814. If you've never experienced Byron's work before, he is a marker of Gothic romanticism, showing extreme emotion. He writes sweeping scenes, dramatic actions, and he really focused on impacting the feelings of the readers. In general, Lord Byron was a bit of a drama queen, but we love it. The Corsair was a tale verse that tells the story of Conrad, a privateer or Corsair, who in his youth was rejected by society because of his actions. Well, what did he do? I don't know. It just said because they don't, of his actions. So li- all he did was like he it, just did something? Okay, first off, it is a very long poem, and it's been a very long time since I've read the entire thing. Wait, wait, wait. You didn't look this up? I did. I read oh, it. Oh, okay. So like, what are the actions? He, it doesn't, it like alludes to things, but it doesn't actually say. So, so is like, it so terrible it can't be said? It's yeah. one of those things? Yeah. He like, he gets in trouble is the euphemism that they is use. Is it like a real bad thing or is it one of those things where it's like you churned butter on Sunday? No, it was like a real bad thing. It was like a legitimate yeah. bad thing yeah. that this guy did. Yeah. Um, so he was rejected from society. Later in life, he wages a one man war on civilized society, except for women because, you know, Byron liked women. So he was nice to them whatever um and he became a well-known privateer this would be the literary start of the romantic pirate the hero of a quote man of loneliness and mystery who perceived himself as a villain and anti-hero and jen i think it's pretty obvious that this is the trend that persists for most romance hero pirates i'm really mad we don't know his backstory (sighs) that's really annoying we don't have an origin for what this guy did it, okay, Jeez. so I've linked it. If you want to read the full poem, it's in the oh, show we'll notes. I'm not into poetry. So, because it starts like in media race, so it starts like in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. So it starts off with him already being a pirate. He has plans okay. to attack um, and seize possessions of some place, Pacha Said. I think that's an island somewhere. His wife talks him out of it. Um, and so he sails instead to the Aegean Sea to attack, attack a Pasha on another island. Um, second verse describes the attack. And during this whole thing, he's got, like, this war inside himself, I guess, like, like duality of good versus evil. Because it's Byron, so it's okay. a drama yeah, yeah, queen, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in the third act, like, more stuff goes on. He refuses to kill the Pasha without a fair fight. Um, a, a woman appears on the scene who ends up killing the Pasha. Spoiler alert, he returns to his wife, but then his wife died because she was grieving and she thought Conrad had died. So he departs from the island alone. Um, he left a corsair to the other times, linked with one virtue and a thousand crimes. All right, so fine. The backstory does not matter that much. Yeah, but yeah. for my own personal satisfaction, I do hate it when people are like, oh, he did something so bad, we can't say. And it's, like, very spooky when it first starts. Like, they're on a beach talking about, like, everything that they've done. And, like, mm-hmm. they're like, there's the captain, the chief. Oh, what has he done? He walks away. And he's just, like, brooding. So very Byron-esque. All right, Brian. <laughs> Lord Byron to you. Whatever. All right. 
So pirates persisted in literature throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. And just like Vikings, they were swept into the wave of adventure literature. Here's where Robert Louis Stevenson comes in with Treasure Island. Treasure Island was first published as a serial in the magazine Young Folks from October 1881 to January 1882 under the title The Sea Cook or Treasure Island. And in 1883, it was fully published in book form. In my mind, Treasure Planet... Treasure Planet. <laughs> That's like my favorite movie, actually. There's <laughs> a Freudian slip. In my mind, Treasure Island largely typifies piratical adventures and why they are so popular to such a wide audience. To this day, Treasure Island remains one of the most widely adapted books. Treasure Planet, Muppets Treasure Island, yeah. Treasure Islands in Outer Space, The Asylum, The Mystery of Treasure Island, and so, so many more from books to graphic novels to comics to movies to TV shows. It just kind of spans the spectrum. And I almost wonder, too, if the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney, which was first conceptualized as a walk-through wax museum after the success of Small World, was also inspired by Stevenson's book. Yeah, probably. I mean, that makes yeah. sense to me. I yeah. mean, if this is like the where it started yeah yeah i love muppet treasure island so <laughs> do much do you want to talk about the muppet i don't really have anything to say just it's like the best muppet pirate movie it's actually agreed to be like one of the best adaptations too mm-hmm. it's super because good. it's the muppets the muppets it's they Kermit. take it they take the audit they take it seriously yes okay that's why the christmas carol is the best one too yes. people just need to stop redoing it yes because it's muppets that's it muppets are death muppets are death yeah <laughs> the only other one i like was the divas christmas carol that's the only other good one. You got the one that was, um, I don't know, Albert Finney did a really good Christmas I don't know who Carol. that is, but we are way off Anyways. track because it is not anywhere near Treasure <laughs> Island. Um, Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Would Not Grow Up, was produced as a play first in 1904 and appeared in print for the first time in 1929. And, of course, it features the iconic Captain Hook, Ooh. the perfect nemesis for a children's adventure story. Because at this point, adventure stories were really starting to be marketed towards younger mm-hmm. readers. And so pirate stories were really marketed towards younger readers. Um, What's interesting, especially in Peter Pan, is the portrayal of pirates. They aren't the romantic figures that they had been previously portrayed as by people like Byron, but nor are they the dirty thieves that they were in in reality. They're nuisances who bumble around. They make silly mistakes a lot of the time, like Smee. Or, in the case of Hook, they're at one point arrogant and stupid, and in another, they're cold and aloof killers. Mm. Interestingly enough, Hook was inspired by Stevenson's characters in Treasure Island. That's insane that one book is yeah. just sprawling all of these things. Yeah. I really hope the Stevenson family still has some kind of I hope so. Some kind of but I have a feeling this. it's kind of like Pride and Prejudice. Probably not. There's anybody who publishes it. It's like too gets, bad. Now yeah. it's everybody's. Uh, so again, we see further separation of pirates in literature from the real-life characters. They were dulled down for a younger audience and made into almost clownish figures with stereotypical traits and caricatures. They had sailing ships named the Jolly Roger, or they wore big flouncy shirts. They had eye patches and gold teeth and bandanas on their head, right? For mostly, no, I don't think pirates were wearing gold teeth and flouncy shirts. So is this supposed to be like scary ocean clowns? Kind of, yeah, if but not like, scary. If they're paring them down for children, so it's, it's like this feels like a uniform, like a like a yes. clown uniform. Yeah, it's me. a caricature. When you start talking about the flouncy shirts and like yeah. the tooth instead of yeah. the nose, yeah, yeah, wow, it was a caricature. It was, and they weren't supposed to be like super scary. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to almost, I want to say, be like moral warnings. Oh, it's one of like those things. People yeah, who lived outside this. society. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Don't be like Captain Hook. You're gonna get your hand eaten. Yeah, exactly. Do, and we're all gonna do, make fun of you. Do, do, do. Uh, the little, little crocodile. 
All right. Uh, children's novels and books gear- were geared towards younger readers, and they ran with this caricature in the 1900s, showcasing pirates in a light that made them palatable and engaging for teens and children reading them. Pirates when they were villains, became bumbling oafs, like the coyote to the roadrunner, and were depicted a lot of times as foppish criminals who hooted over piles of gold. If they were heroes, pirates became the Robin Hood, the social bandit, mm. men of good character who had been thrust into poverty, poverty over some injustice, but they robbed the bad guys and doled out the wealth accordingly. We don't really have time to look at it, but thinking about Robin Hood figures' predominance throughout literature and popular media during the Great Depression could be really interesting. And I really hope there's a psychologist out there somewhere who's like delved into that because that could be cool. With the further rise of popular adventure tales post-World War II, literary tastes ran towards authors who combined romance, history, and intrigue, and pirates had this in spades. So it's only natural that when romance books started appearing on the scene, and especially bodice rippers, pirates were a shoo-in for characters. So Jen, why do you think bodice rippers so often revolved around these adventure narratives? Hmm. I wonder if it was just a way for them to meet men. (laughs) early dating apps <laughs> yeah you don't have tinder back then so it's like what are you gonna marry the milk guy down the street or are you gonna get swept away by this really cool pirate instead of you know swiping right the cool thing is to go stand out on the dock and yeah, show a and little then, ankle exactly and then get just swooped up Decolletage. yeah exactly <laughs> the tighter your corset the better the pirate maybe it was just like a plot device it's like yeah. all right we've got like this woman who is down on her luck, maybe, maybe she's rich, so she's stuck in the house all day. And it's like, how else are you going to get them out of the house but go on an adventure? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's too simplistic and off the top of my head, but no, I think, I, think I have something there. Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good thing. I mean, <laughs> and depending on the time, too, I feel like travel in general probably wasn't accessible to a lot of people. Mm. It's really only recently, I think, that it has been as easy as it has been. And like I say that in quotations. Yeah, to go to places. So for a really long time, all you really had were these books. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, probably 50 years ago, I wouldn't have never left the state. Yeah. Right? Or like even, I mean, now how many people who are privileged enough get to go to places like Bali or Hawaii mm-hmm. or like the Caribbean for well, that's true, because for a long time, adventure. like how are you going to get down there? Exactly. And across the ocean for, like, the general person, it wasn't accessible. So, yeah, that's a good point, too. And airplanes were not really a big deal till what, like, the 60s, the 70s, that that started to become a thing? Yeah. And even then, like, how long did it take for there to be cheap flights? Yeah. Well, they were cheaper than they are today. Yeah. <laughs> Probably with all the fees. <laughs> yeah. Um, in my opinion, I think it had a lot to do with a growing readership that was looking for more of the romance plotline, but still wanted the adventure. Mm. So a lot of the adventure narratives, even though I hate to use gender stereotypes, were in the mid to late 20th century geared towards male readers. Mm. They were often, they often featured warfare, like the bang, bang, shoot em up style plots and male centered gazes that treated side characters and especially women in not so good lights. For instance, I'm thinking of the Long Arm series of Westerns, which was by a series of authors collectively known as Tabor Evans. So this is a Western series that featured the hero Custis Long, Custis, a.k.a. Long Arm, um, <laughs> going on a variety of adventures and like military deeds. And I read through a bunch of these growing up, and I would say that the predominant treatment of relationships in this book is like frat boy. Ugh, yeah gross um the quote hero gets with multiple women in the books and he kind of he's like the love him and leave him type and it's very mm-hmm. glorified so in my mind of the adventure books i've read from this time period so we're talking about like 60s through like 80s at this point 
this really typified the plot of adventure stories. And mm. I think that some readers, especially readers who are looking for more of the romance, like we want romance in our stories, yeah. right? Like a lot of people actively seek it it's out. It's not even the romance so much as like the emotion. Yeah, Because sometimes I think when you healthy read. Healthy relationships. Yeah, when you read those adventure stories, there's like a lot of flat parts in it. Mm. If it's just plot based, if there's no like character growth. It's if all there's no action. Like, it, yeah, at a certain point, it's exhausting to have the boat explode for the 1,000. Like how many explosions in gunfire can you really have? Exactly. That's yeah. why I don't really like Matt Damon movies. I mean, like, I can, but I see your point because I feel like we do tend to kind of put books into like these gendered expectations, and yeah. we obviously don't like that. We've talked about that before, but it must have been like a gazillion times worse mm-hmm. back in the past. Yeah, I really think that these readers wanted to see these rough heroes and these adventure stories going kind of more back to that gothic romanticism. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was a necessary like I want books to be like that, like they were right. in the past. I think it was more of readers being like we will buy more of these books that feature this adventure, mm-hmm. this romantic adventure. Yeah, people like excitement. Yeah. And Bada Strippers, like the one we talk about, like Pirates, Westerns, Vikings, mm-hmm. Highlanders, they all started to get written with this more like romantic gaze, but still featuring that adventure and that rough exactly. hero. I remember reading, when I was doing all that research for The Flower and the Flame, ugh. but I do remember <laughs> reading between the author and some reviewers, that was one of the, the first stories they'd read where the, the heroine went on an adventure yeah. where she left home or she had to face all this peril and all this unknown. There There is a certain appeal to that. And it's grown up. Yeah. As silly as that sounds. Like, as you were saying that, my brain went to Nancy Drew. Mm, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Because like, Nancy Drew does all that, but yeah. it's for younger readers. Mm-hmm. And it's like me as a 30-year-old person, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't. I mean, I like to read that sometimes, but mostly I want a little bit deeper of yeah. feeling here, guys. And mm-hmm. that is something that I look for in romance. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Cool. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so I still on. don't, bl- I still hate Flame in the Flower. Oh. I don't care what you established I for adventure. I may not say something about it in a few minutes. I so. swear to freaking God, <laughs> I swear so. to God. <laughs> Pirates in these classic bodice rippers tended to really portray that classic Byronic brooding anti-hero a lot of the times they were disgraced former lords and sometimes ladies who had left quote good society to become pirates um in these early bodice rippers the heroes are often portrayed as disillusioned rakes who could not possibly care any less so think of a hero who's lounging in his cabin when the heroine is kidnapped or brought to him and just passes judgment with apathy right like he's leaning back in his chair and he's like whatever that it can be found in The Gift by Julie Garwood. Um, or sometimes the heroes are really sarcastic meanie heads who can only be described using the word rogue. And to be honest, I love rogue heroes. They're kind of my favorite. Like in Gentle Rogue by Joanna Lindsay. Rest in peace. Um, a lot of modern readers will describe the hero in these books as douchey. Yeah, I, I couldn't d- deal with a lot of those heroes. Yeah. I would absolutely not read that book. Yeah Reading it now, it's not so fun, but I did really like it growing mm-hmm. up. And a modern rogue. I like a modern rogue. It's weird how eras change things. Yeah. Like, why were we cool with it back then? To have That's like what I want to know. Yeah. Psychologist, take a look at this, please. Mm-hmm. Um, the heroines in these books also, also tended to fit a few different molds. A lot of the times, the heroine was like Heather in Flame and the Flower. <sighs> I'm sorry, Jen. Gross. A young, innocent ingenue who gets kidnapped by pirates and comes to love her jailer, which <sighs> sounds really bad. Look, I try to be positive on this podcast, and I don't. I don't like making fun of books, but like I love making fun of that book. It's so <laughs> stupid. I hate that book. It's easy to make fun of, I think. Ugh. At least in our minds. I'm sorry if that's your favorite book. Good for you for having a favorite book. 
Um, heroines could also be sassy, independent women who give the hero a run for their money. And they're usually pretty good with weapons, which I really like, like Raven Russell and Shauna Galen's The Rogue Pirate's Bride. And honestly, a lot of these character caricatures still exist in pirate novels today for a good reason. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are just fun. Yeah. And a lot of them carry the plot along, and a lot of them have kind of that appeal of... Well, here's this terrible, awful person who's going to change for me. Yeah. Not to borrow Nicholas Sparks' <laughs> assumption of women. But, I mean, that is an appeal, I think, especially with kind of these rough and tumble mm. pirate lords. I also think my favorite is the rogue, right? The rake, mm. the the sarcastic one. And yeah. the banter in that. I love banter in books. Yeah. And the banter with that kind of hero and heroine is gold. Mm-hmm. Pure gold in my mind. And now is the time when we finally get to talk about one of my favorite movies and the one that people were probably waiting for me to talk about the whole time, The Pirates of the Caribbean, and how it may or may not have influenced popular portrayals of pirates today. So, well, let me ask really quick. When did the first one come out? Like, were there still pirate books coming out when the first one came out? Mm, I think the first one came out in, what, 2005? I don't even remember. I mean, time is a construct. Because I feel like the last... 2003. Okay. So maybe it was roughly the same time because I feel like I stopped seeing as many historical pirates in the 2000s. Yeah. And I think... I didn't really correlate anything with 9-11 for once because... (laughs) We always do. Yeah. I know we always do. And I think that it's pretty obvious at this point that a lot changed in the early 2000s and the early aughts. And I don't really necessarily know how much of pirates changed because they already had those big bad heroes, mm-hmm. right? And they already a lot of times had the sassy heroine yeah. that a lot of readers were looking for. I think that just as Regency, which we'll talk about Regency here in a minute, as Regency got more popular, it kind of started subsuming, mm. which is one of my favorite words, subsume. <laughs> it's a good word. Um, started subsuming the pirates and started like mm-hmm. absorbing it into itself. So I think it just it was like a natural evolution. Okay. While Pirates of the Caribbean might not be historically accurate, <clears throat> Uh, it is a really interesting look at how we, the public, perceive and consume pirates. In the movies, pirates are mostly sexy. There are some gross ones, ones we don't want to think about, and ones that we wouldn't get near with a 10-foot pole. But at the same time, there's this direct op- exposition of the dirty pirate against the sexy Will Turner, the eyeliner-smeared grunge boy Sparrow, the straight-laced Norrington, and let's not forget the ladies with the sassy swan. And this dichotomy shows up in romance novels today, too. We still see the same old portrayal of the pirate hero as either the brooding, apathetic, devil-may-care character, like Will, or as the -the over-the-top, swashbuckling, sweep-you-off-your-feet rogue, like Jack. Heroines are often nowadays like Elizabeth, bold, brazen, determined to do things their own way, and quite independent. Um, We've mostly lost the bumbling pirate character in favor of the Robin Hood or Jack Sparrow, for the most part. Outside of romance, I will argue that pirates have taken on a night not quite historically accurate tilt, but maybe something more along the lines of historically inspired. Like the show Black Sails, which is meant to be a precursor or a prequel to Treasure Island and shows pirates as dirty, savage thieves who existed outside the law and had their own culture. Or the new release, Our Flag Means Death, which is a comedic take on Blackbeard and the gentleman pirate Steed Bonnet um, and portrays pirates as a community of people just looking for the next adventure and looking for love. It's really sweet. I love that show so much. Uh, Today's pirates novels, though, while they're not quite published to the same fervor as they were during the Bodice Ripper era, they have nonetheless remained a steady horse in the race of the romance novel. They aren't as much of a lost genre as Vikings are, although they have been, like I said, largely subsumed by other genres, such as Regency, sci-fi fantasy, and especially YA fantasy. 
Regency pirates are interesting because it shows another side of the pirate saga being set during the Napoleonic Wars. People don't necessarily think of Napoleonic pirates in the 1800s. You know, we tend to really just focus on that golden age of piracy in the early 1700s. But during the Napoleonic Wars, pirates played a large part. That's a lot of peas, lots of onomatopoeia. Um, they played a large part in the warfare of the era. I think everyone who knows something about history at least recognizes the names Waterloo and Admiral Lord Nelson. We all know, too, how popular Regency is in general in the romance world. And putting pirates on the scene just kind of feels like a natural fit. So Julia Quinn of Bridgerton fame, like Jen said earlier, has even ventured into this realm with her Rokesby series in The Other Miss Bridgerton, which was really fun. That one was really fun. We did that for our book club a couple years ago. Um, Here we see themes of smuggling and privateers set against the backdrop of, quote, sensible England. Sci-fi and fantasy, meanwhile, have been where pirates have really started expanding into new territories, shall we say, Uh in today's Romance Landia. For sci-fi, I can point to none other than the queen herself, Ruby Dixon. She has a whole series that's devoted to space pirates and was influenced by the TV show Firefly, which is also about space pirates. Um, The Corsair series is set on a ship in space and features lovable rogues who thieve from bad aliens. The Corsair's Brothers is fun because the first book features like a ship explosion and all the books from there are heroes who are separated by life pods in space and they're separated. They have one hero and one heroine per life pod. Um, Some of them crash land on deserted planets like deserted islands and some of them have to fight their way um, through other rogue space pirate ships. In fantasy, especially YA fantasy, there's been a huge trend in pirates lately, and though I can't really say why, I know I love it. The Fable duology by Adrian Young follows a heroine who sneaks on board a pirate ship in an effort to find her father who abandoned her, and she falls in love with the captain along the way. All the Stars and Teeth duology by Adelin, 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 I'm not sure, sorry. Adelin Grace has a princess with inherited magic on the run who seeks a pirate for help. And in adult fantasy, we love some romanticy. There's the Bridge Kingdom series by Daniel Jensen, which I would classify as a pirate book, even though it's not set at sea. I can't really give much away without spoilers, but it just kind of gives off those vibes, you know? So unlike Vikings, pirates really haven't gone anywhere. Just they aren't really is popular see i feel like after you just listed all those examples i don't think it's so much they're not popular i think they've just evolved into something else that Mm. we need okay that's a good point i mean because they are so much in sci-fi romance now yes i would argue probably like a lot of those books are based off kind of like these pirate ideals Mm -hmm. or like ya fantasy or any of these other kind of alternate genres that are not like super historically accurate yes are put into kind of these mashup worlds so I think we just kind of put the pirates somewhere else in different high seas. There you go. Ooh, different yeah. high seas. Yeah. In a space world. And to go off ideals, I think that due to popular media's, media's fanatic idealization of the pirate figure, pirates really aren't going anywhere. I think they're going to stay. I think it's too easy to adapt them to things. Yeah. I mean, because they're such a part of normal ad- adventure stories. Mm-hmm. And adventure stories yeah. are like bread and butter to literature. Yeah, I, I mean, say. we're never going to lose that stuff. But I don't think that they're going to remain in classic historical romance novels like Jen was just saying. Probably not. Since historicals seem to be really obsessed with Regencies. I mean, eventually we're going to be seeing a backlash to that and people will be really, really tired. But I don't think that's going to be for a while, especially with the Bridgerton What do you think is going to be next for historicals? 
I don't see it changing anytime soon, not with Regency. Mm. I feel like what will happen, though, is we'll see different people in Regency. Because mm. we're starting to see things like that, where instead of such a big focus on, on lords and ladies and dukes, and I mean, we're also seeing like the servants, or we're seeing the traders, or we're yeah. seeing merchants, or we're point. seeing different classes of people in um, in Regency. And yeah, especially non-white. I mean, that's yeah. especially big right and now. And queer couples. Mm-hmm. Queer historicals are yeah. huge right now. So I think goodness. right now we're going to be expanding what we consider Regency. Yeah. I don't necessarily see us going into different eras yet. Okay. Mm, At least until we get really tired and we want to do that same kind of exploration in different time periods. Yeah. And there's a lot to play with in Regency. Mm-hmm. So like I just said, you can even have pirates in Regency. Yeah. So, you know. Um, I personally think that we're going to start seeing a lot of continued blending of Regency and pirates, yep. of fantasy and pirates, and especially space pirates. But I don't think we'll be seeing seeing Jack Sparrow figures running around, at least not in traditionally pubbed. No, that's fair. And I feel like, too, it feels old. Yeah. I don't know if I should say that that way exactly, but it does feel a little a dated in some ways. Like, it feels like a vintage thing my mom would have read as a kid. <laughs> yeah, vintage. So maybe yep. it really is just our taste at the moment. That's a good point. And, like, in another 20, 30, 40 years, people get tired of all these mashups, and they're like, just give me a pirate. So then why do you think that pirate TV shows are so popular? Are they? Because really the only one I can think of is the the flag one. Black sails and our flag means death. Black sails won awards. Well, that's true. I guess but it like is it, one of those niche historical shows. But it was in, yeah, like I haven't actually met anybody in real life aside from you that's watched that show. <laughs> the only thing I know about either of those two shows are from Tumblr. <laughs> Fair enough. So they are kind of niche. They are on these alternate streaming platforms that's not really available to everybody who's just got a basic cable plan. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I I don't know. There, there There is something that feels a little vintage about them. Yeah. And it's like they're exciting, but you want to dress them up somehow by like throwing them in space. kind of like cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. Because cowboys, traditionally pub cowboys, like the same thing. It feels vintage, like mm-hmm. you said. And people are probably yelling at us for saying vintage right now. But hey, I, the 80s are officially vintage. Look, it's a better word than what I was thinking of. Yeah. It's much nicer. <laughs> okay. Um. Meanwhile, in indie pubbed books, pirates like Jack Sparrow abound. They are all mm-hmm. over the place. One of my favorite books, which I sent to Jen, and I'm hoping she eventually reads it, is The Sea of Ruin by Pam Godwin, which is, I've talked about this before, it is mm-hmm. a retelling of Pirates of the Caribbean with an MFM, so male-female-male pairing. Super spicy, super good, very dark though. Um, you also have Rogue Booty by Golden <laughs> Angel. Funny. And... Yeah, the, like I said, the thing that's most interesting about these is that a lot of times they feature non-traditional, non-hetero pairings. That makes sense to me. Yeah, so it's like Indy's kind of playing with it. I feel like there's something about a pirate that just feels very free-spirited. Yeah, it's very and queer very, and I love it. But you know, too, there's something about a pirate that feels greedy. Yeah. Like, yes, give me all the lovers I want. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. So right off of that, um, mm-hmm. right now, Peter Pan and Captain Hook retellings are huge. Oh, yeah. Um, and I cannot tell you how many plots I've seen that pair Pan and Hook together mm-hmm. or with Hook as the good guy. So, for instance, yeah. Katie Robert did one called A Worthy Opponent, which puts Hook with Tinkerbell. Um, and, and it's a modern day sex club. Mm-hmm. It's really great. Um, and also Hooked by Emily McIntyre is a dark take on Wendy and Hook. It's really interesting how many people want to put Peter Pan in like a, a dark role. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense in hindsight. Like, it's interesting the, the lens we're viewing Peter Pan now. I've seen a really popular, like, thing going around on Reddit where what if Peter Pan was actually the bad guy kidnapping oh, the whole kids time, yeah. and, and Hook, Hook was, was like the one the trying up. to save mm-hmm. them? Which I'm like... Oh. I liked the thing where the, the pirates are grown-up lost boys and, yeah. like, they're trying to save all these other lost boys like from Like in the fate. movie Hook with Robin Williams. Yeah. I love that movie. So... 
overall, maybe it was cheating a little bit to include pirates in a lost genre when really they're still out there and still pretty popular. But I don't know. Like I said before, the genre just feels different than how it was when yeah. we were growing no, up. No, I would agree. I mean, when I look at all the lists and when I look at what's available to buy, like there's there's no pirates the way there were when we grew up. And yeah. Like in the 80s and 90s. And at one point it felt like it was a big deal. And now just. And every so often a famous author will come out or like a bigger author will come out with a romance, yeah. like a pirate romance. So like Nora Roberts, um, she did. I mean, it's old by now. It's called The Reef. Yeah. And I think it was published in the mid aughts then it wasn't a Regency. It was like yeah. a modern take on yeah. piracy. It's a modern. It's like yeah. The Blue. It's a mm-hmm. romance version of the movie The Blue. Um, or there's Sabrina Jeffries came out with yeah. one a few years ago. Julia Quinn, like I said, has done a has couple. Done um, but yeah, mostly sci-fi, mm-hmm. I feel like. Yeah. So that I guess we all want to escape Earth. <laughs> I, I think that's really more what it or is. Or just, I want to just sail mm-hmm. into the blue and drink rum and eat coconuts all mm-hmm. day. That's all. So who knows? I mean, I feel like this, out of everything we've talked about, pirates are probably the, more, the most likely to, to sail again. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Until we talk about our next <laughs> character. We'll see. Okay. okay. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of our Sailing the High Seas journey. Um, and I think it's time to let everybody know what we're going to talk about in the next full-length episode. Ooh. Jen is so excited. Ah, we're going to be talking Highlanders. Oh, that God, was a really gonna... bad Scottish accent. I'm so sorry. Oh, God. Are you going to do the whole <laughs> thing in an accent? No, I won't. Thank I can't you. talk that much of a Scottish accent. Oh, thank God. I can basically just say, ah, we lassie. Oh, boy. Ah, no. Anyway. I have so much running through my head I can't say because this is a work podcast. Jen is going to be so frustrated at my next script. Great. It's going to, I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. Oh, all right. Well, don't forget to go check out the Raging Romantics book list. I've put the link in the show notes. I'm just click it it'll take you right there and you can also check out all of our resources for today's episode in the show notes so everything we read everything i've like listened to mm-hmm. read all that sort of fun stuff i've also linked a few extra goodies in there for like podcasts and nonfiction books that i personally love but i didn't really have time to necessarily talk about in today's mm-hmm. show if you have questions comments or concerns you can email us at ragingromantics at noble.org so we are doing one more lost genre, but hey, if you have any more genres you're curious what happened to, send us an email because yeah. there's a, still a couple more out there, but we're just going to do a, a really main deep dive on these three. Yeah. So don't forget to reach out to us because we love hearing from you. Yeah, please email us. Yeah, please. Jackie gets really sad when you don't. Um, also, don't forget to listen to our minisodes this month. Oh, because they're fun. We've got some really good ones. Jen came up with some really good topics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, Jen, Pirate Meiji. What do we always say? Rawr on! <laughs> it didn't work. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rage on! <laughs> Bye, guys. Intro here. Bow, bow. Um, let me know if my mouth sounds weird because I do have like kind of a sore tingly oh. thing. So I'm trying to drink a lot of water. That's okay. So if I do start to sound like... <clears throat> <clears throat>